Osiris. Hey guys, before we go beyond the pond, we are very excited to tell you about our sponsor for this week. The holiday is right around the corner. What do you get for the fish fan who has everything? Aside from the war on drugs lost in the dream on vinyl? Nah, you get them ice cream. If you guys know anything about this podcast, you know that we care about three things. The song Mercury, the 1969 baseball season, and ice cream. That's why we're very excited to discuss Ben and Jerry's ice cream. Ben and Jerry's has collaborated with Fish and the Water Wheel Foundation to create a limited flavor. It's ice cream. A caramel malt ice cream with almond toffee pieces, fudge fish, and a caramel swirl. The packaging for the ice cream and a very limited t-shirt were designed by Jim Pollock. And a portion of the proceeds for the ice cream and all of the proceeds for the t-shirts were donated to the Water Wheel Foundation. The ice cream and the teas can be ordered at store.benjerry.com. If you use the promo code OSIRIS, it's O-S-I-R-I-S, you can get free shipping on all orders over $50 for the rest of 2018. There's also a special curveball fish food slash water wheel tea week that was created for the canceled festival that can be purchased online. Now let's go beyond the pond. Hey folks, I am David Goldstein. I am Brian Brinkman. You are tuned in to episode 48 of the Beyond the Pond podcast. This is the podcast in which, generally speaking, Brian and myself utilize the music of Fish as a means of introducing the listener to other bands. Because we love Fish, we are Fish fans. Sometimes the problem with Fish fans is they get a bit myopic. They fail to see the forest for the trees. They only listen to Fish. They bury their heads in the Fish Companion, the Helping Friendly book. Don't come up for air. And really, we need to do something about that. Absolutely. And here we are in episode 48, recapping Fitch's recent run in Las Vegas. And oh, what a run it was. Uh, I think that we thought going into Vegas that we'd have, you know, maybe one, maybe two big jams to cover. Fitch just like dumped a massive, massive storm on all of us in Vegas and the entire community. So we have a huge, huge episode for you guys here. Yeah, it's, it's kind of one of those runs where if you basically forget everything that Fish played before Vegas, I don't blame you. Not because it wasn't good, <laughs> because it's it's kind of just, just it's kind of just ah, 
a bit immaterial. <laughs> there's there's uh, before KV and after KV fish. Exactly. Uh, like there's the before the Tahoe tweezer and after the Tahoe tweezer. Exactly. So what we're going to do on this episode, it's going to be broken down into a couple parts. Our first segment, we are going to have um, our very good friend, Ben Greenfield at Guy Forger OPT, joining us to break down um, the Halloween 2018 record, uh, Kazvot Vox, Iraq. Then we're going to do uh, some chatter here about the four shows and kind of big takeaways that we had from those. And then we're going to jump into a couple sections of music um, that we think uh, fits pretty well uh, with the overall run that we just experienced. And we think that you guys are going to dig some of the songs that we've selected and really like our approach here. And some of the themes which we're going to explore in this episode include in Vegas, all bets are off. I fake it so real. I am beyond fake. And the fire of Scandinavia. And on that note, let's get to the fish. guys so jumping into our first segment here we are going to talk about the halloween 2018 record we we're all introduced to the band kazvot voxed is that the right pronunciation i guess <laughs> we need a scandinavian person on here to to tell us for sure oh man well we tried to get a scandinavian person um but all we ended up with was ben greenfield welcome back to the podcast mm-hmm. ben you are our first time repeat guest you are officially a friend of the pod wow thank you so much guys what you an honor are the glue in our magnet <laughs> that was written actually about our podcasting relationship yeah. um, well i i just i just all i hope for is that this is not my final hurrah <laughs> just say it to me Santos um, so we're going to talk about Kazvot Voxed Iraq, the lone album um, I'm just, I'm just no, laughing about it, I'm sorry what's that? I'm just cracking up thinking about it, I'm sorry <laughs> so kind of a little backstory to this whole thing um, so with the internet going wild with rumors that Fish was going to cover Electric Ladyland, Mark of the Mole, music from Big Pink, Physical Graffiti, among many, many other dream records. The band pulled one of their all-time zags, and they made up a band, a backstory, enlisted the help of WFMU radio station in New York, all music, and even a writer for Pitchfork to convince fans that they were covering the lone, obscure record 
from the Norwegian band Kasvat Vox. Before the internet figured out the hoax and word spread of the genius of the gag. I mean, what I like about this was that putting songs into WFMU playlist that was particularly inspired, as was the fact that, I mean, Fish sticked out all the outlets where nerds who care about this sort of thing would be sure to go. I mean, who didn't immediately consult the All Music Guide? I know I sure did. And then they actually get Stephen Thomas Erlewine from said All Music Guide to tweet about it and, like, write a review about it. And then to create a WFMU blog post from 2005. I mean, basically, Fish are just huge fucking nerds, and they're way more into the record collector dork zeitgeist than we give them credit for, I think. Yeah, it's it's true. Well, I feel like... Um... There was at least one uh, fish bill in which David Frick wrote a bunch of, of stuff for the inside of the fish bill. And, and David Frick seems to be like their go-to, uh, you know, music writer guy. Right. Um, and and so it's, I think it's telling that, you know, that rather than go with him, like the sort of classic rock guy, they uh, that they turn to, to, you know, somewhat more obscure outlets or more at least like the kind of outlets like WFMU that would be totally into this record if it actually existed and it's 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 pretty clever I mean it's and it's such a to to both your points it's such a clear understanding of where so many of their fans have gone in recent years as more and more music becomes available on the internet as more and more resources are there um you know rather than going with someone like Frick, they decide to go down this kind of wormhole that they know that their fans are going to follow them down, but they also kind of know that some of their fans are going to start to figure it out because they're going to ask even more questions. Um, Plus, plus like FMU, I mean, lately that's kind of become a home for uh, sort of these new style hipster jam bands like uh, Webtuna, Garcia Peoples, 111 Heavy, you know, kind of... um, bands that share membership and they'll do stuff like play gigs at Union Pool in Williamsburg without some like lab recordings stuff for the WFMU fanboys as I call them (laughs) Um, so you guys were not at the show I was at the show and um, it definitely took me some time like I was just so like blown away by what I was about to see and I was spending some time reading the articles that were posted online. It took me, I think, a little bit longer than had I been on my couch to really realize that this was a fake. And I know that there were a lot of people in the audience who didn't never, who never realized it throughout the show. They just didn't hop on the internet that night. Uh, but I'm curious what your guys' experience was. And I know, Ben, you were particularly active in terms of posting um, that Santa Claus was, in fact, not real. Um, (laughs) tell me what your guys experience was as this all unfolded yeah no i i I was definitely like that kid who ruins it for all the other kids (laughs) um sorry other kids but uh yeah well so uh so i was webcasting it um and so i was like fully tuned into everything that was going on on social media and there was one person and it's slipping my mind who it was um who uncovered the fact that you know, despite there being like this WFMU stuff, that if you looked in the Wayback Archive, that there was no record whatsoever of this WFMU stuff mm. before like two weeks ago. Um, so that was kind of the first hint that that this whole thing was obviously fake. I mean, I think there were other ones. 
Um, but then, uh, yeah, but then I think, you know, in some ways it was so similar to Chilling Thrilling, um, where, like, you get in and, like, there's a fishbowl that, where, where it's, like, ostensibly about a real right. album, but, like, but there's something off if you, if you read all of the, the description, and it's clear that, you know, knowing what we know about fish, that, like, they're up to some of their shenanigans again. Um, and so I just, I just kind of assumed pretty quickly that, uh, that this was just them pulling something and, uh, and we were about to get something, you know, something that we couldn't quite have expected what. I think what sealed it for me was in the bio part when they talked about how the band members first met in a bunker under Greenland. I said, <laughs> okay, that's too dry. <laughs> that's not real. Right. Like, and they, and they said they had to translate the lyrics from like Scandinavian, and they were singing in multiple Scandinavian languages. But the translation took less than a day, and they said you could really feel the poetry and the artistry in the words. And I started to say, "All right, these guys have a really fucked up great <laughs> sense of humor." So I, I was walking into MGM, and and Ben, I believe you've been to the MGM Grand Garden Arena. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. So I think you know, like when you turn into the entrance, it kind of bottlenecks, and um, I was probably in line for 20 minutes. And right when I got into line, I just said, "I'm going completely dark on social media and text messages because nobody knows where I'm at. The last thing I want is to pull up Twitter and see the, you know, that they're playing the Kinks or something like that, and that ruined the surprise." So my phone was going crazy and I finally got through security and I got the playbill and we were just kind of like ushered to get a beer, go to the bathroom, get to our seats. And it wasn't until I finally sat down that I read this. And like I said, I was just like blown away by, it kind of reminded me in a sense of uh, my experience at the fuck your face show where I almost like didn't pay attention to the gag. Cause I was just loving the overall ambience of the show entirely. But, um, yeah, by the time I realized it, you know, knowing that we were about to get this complete Fish album that had come out of this type of inspiration, I was just that much more excited. And um, so getting to the songs here and kind of the music that we have at hand, I would argue, I think these are the best songs the band has dropped at once since the story of the ghost songs that came out 20 years ago. And I think that they have the greatest potential for creative outpouring experimentation since the round room songs came out the big jams that came out of those what are you guys thoughts about that um i've got to listen to it more i mean i've been listening to it quite a bit and i think that in their attempts to craft a classic fake scandinavian album to cover with poorly translated lyrics they somehow stumbled backwards into the fishiest album they've made since yeah story of the ghost like who does that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, I think that's totally true. And actually, I would I would agree with both of what you guys said. It's um, it's funny. I've been trying to think back, to think to myself, like, wh- like where does this fit into the Fish catalog? Because, you know, right. for the last couple of years, we've been getting, we've been getting, like, a lot of songs about souls. We've been getting, like, you know, and then there's, like, the Blazons, the No, Man, no Man's Land kind of songs, which are, you know, sort of like... Uh, a lot of straight ahead rock songs a lot of just kind of grooves um 
and uh, and this this none of this feels like any of that, with the, with the one exception of Stray Dog, which to me sounds like Trey could have written it for Hands on a Hard Body. Um, but the rest of these songs, the the one thing that I keep coming back to is uh, is uh, Fuego and Wombat. Um, Fuego and Wombat both feel like songs that were written by the full band. You feel every band member's influence, and it feels like there's a lightness and a silliness to them. And uh, and and to me, it feels like this is kind of the next step in that evolution. And and I feel like it really is like they've they've really progressed um, in, in terms of their ability to to write songs together. And uh, and I agree. I I feel like like they've really hit on something new that just works really well for them. Um, and and I'm super excited about it. Yeah, I think in terms of trying to sound like a Scandinavian psych band, the only song that maybe kind of gets there is the first song, Turtle in the Clouds, which yeah. actually to me sounds like Can, but not um, yeah. like the Tego Mego, Igbamyasi era Can that's cool to like, rather like the late 70s stuff where they got a new bass player and sometimes let the bass player sing, like Out of Reach, Flow Motion, which is... Um, uh, they're not considered to be very good can albums, but kind of when taken in the context of the fake Scandinavian record, it works here. But the rest of it, other than that, I think it just sounds like classic fish with more keyboards. And I'm perfectly happy with that. Yeah, I think that's the challenge. I mean, I think that to both of what you guys are saying, that's the interesting and challenging thing about this record is that, um, like you were saying, Ben, it feels like, um, you know, Fuego definitely comes up, um, these like full band efforts. Like you were saying, Dave, like it has that hint back to their like zany lyrics from the origins of their career. I mean, it seems to me like they tapped into the like first real like batch of fish songs since Round Room in a lot of cases. You know, these aren't very personal songs. They don't sound like it immediately, even though they have certain lines that you can pull out and kind of apply to various parts of your life. Um, doesn't sound like Tom Marshall was a part of these lyrics. I haven't heard any confirmation. I mean, I, I spoke with him after um, on, on November 1st, and he said he was just as shocked as everyone. I don't know if that's a play or anything, but um, <laughs> it feels like these are some of the freshest ideas that they've had, but also you know, call back to their earlier age. Um, and it really reminds me, the feeling I have listening to these songs and coming out of that show was a similar feeling I had to coming out of Dick's 2012, where it felt like the bad the band had tapped into something that was familiar and historic for them, but also something that could take them into this next step. And I think that's probably the most exciting aspect to this. Where did the rumor that they were going to play like residents come from? That was that was supposedly based on like a Fishman text message. Yeah, I think I think Fishman had, and I didn't see this. Somebody tweeted this at me that Fishman had told somebody that, um, or showed them a text that said that they were playing like some kind of obscure record from the early '80s, yeah. and uh, yeah, and and somehow that could only point possibly to the residents. I don't know. He said it was a, a it was an incredibly obscure record from 1981. Okay, that. Um, they fell in love with when they were in Goddard College and was the record that they had basically taught themselves how to jam and experiment while listening to and that they had considered covering this record in years past but felt <laughs> it was too obscure and the reason why they were going to cover it now was because every band's doing a Halloween cover album now and it's like 
why would they come out and just play Jimi Hendrix or you know whatever? Um, nice and misdirection, then, Fish. Well, and then someone pieced together. You know, if you if you take into consideration the hollow or the cover art for and the tickets for the 2013, 14, and 15, or excuse me, and 16 um, uh, fall tours, they all make sense with what the Halloween album is. 13 is like the guy climbing to the top of the uh, mountain and then jumping off and landing in a house. It's like he, you know, like jumps off and is like you know flying a wingsuit. 14 is this like weird train ride that goes through the forest and through the mountains and ends up in Las Vegas. And it's like the lead up to like chilling, thrilling in this like weird spooky circus. And 16 is all different scenes of like the spiders from Mars. And if you looked at this year's, it was this like gypsies, like, you know, like palm readers face, like pointing the way towards Vegas and his face slowly became a single eyeball, which is the helmet that the residents wore. On top of that, smoke way too much weed. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> on top of that, there was a picture of Fish and Mike uh, during rehearsals. Mike was wearing a he was wearing Fish's dress, and Fishman was wearing Mike's scarf, but his shirt was the resident shirt. So kind of all those things tied together had everyone scrambling and listening to Mark and the Mole and um, a lot of people complaining about Mark and the Mole. Because <laughs> it's not very good. Man. The residents have much better albums than Mark and the Mole. Um, so, it was quite a bit of misdirection and uh, led to just like a lot of fun on Halloween. I mean, getting back to the songs, there's honestly not like a single song on this record. I wouldn't want to hear the band play again and I wouldn't want to hear them try to jam i mean i've counted up like six out of the ten songs i want in the rotation immediately like turtle in the clouds everything is hollow we come to outlive our brains say to me santos play by play and death don't hurt very long it's one of those immediately into the rotation i would love to hear those over like any number of you know recent fish songs that have come out even though there's some great ones in there the first half of the album is slightly better than the second i think it drops off a little bit after the final hurrah I mean still good don't get me wrong but given the choice I'd rather hear them focus on like the first six songs yeah I, I agree I mean yes to me like I said before I feel like Stray Dog is is a song that easily could have just been thrown in here because they needed another song and it was just yeah. you know like it, it honestly it doesn't other than like the over here over there part it doesn't. It doesn't really have any of like the hallmarks of the rest of the songs. Like the, there are no, there are no. Uh, I'm the glue in your magnet lines in there. Right. Um, the the one song that I think is really interesting. It's not one of my favorite songs by a long shot, but uh, which I think could be a really interesting song for just for setlist reasons is play by play. Um, that mm. song, like the the outro jam for that song, it kind of. I was trying to think of what it reminded me of, and the one thing I. Was thinking of was uh was i want you she's so heavy by the beatles oh yeah yeah. Um, yeah and i feel like i feel like that's the kind of song that like maybe like 20 years later just kind of in the middle of a second set somewhere it could just get into some really evil spaces um and i'm i'm really looking forward to to seeing what that does but um but yeah so many of these i would love i can't wait to see what they do when they jam but i also just can't wait to 
be in an arena and like sing I'm the glue in your magnet at the top of my lungs. Like how how fun is that gonna be? I can't wait for that big set to say it to me Santos opener. Yeah. Instead of instead of Carini. Exactly. It's me Santos. I'm I'm calling that as being the second set opener on December 29th. I would I would love that. I'll yeah. be there. Um any any mention of the record has to include a mention of the show. Um it's funny so I sat in the I sat mic side just like kind of up above in the 200 section just slightly behind the stage and I was um I've sat in those kind of seats before at MSG, but down lower, and they've always been a little bit better. And I was a little concerned going into it because I'd never been to this venue. And my brother had read somewhere that said the 200 sections were actually going to be better than the floor or the 100s for this show. And I didn't really know what to take from that. But in the you know days afterwards, realizing that everyone on the floor did not get like the full display of the cubes. And they didn't see the stage light up until they watched it, you know, after uh, the show the show ended. So I think you know you have to include like how this was presented. Um, I would say, and and they're incredibly nerdy still, but I think this was the coolest fish has ever looked in any sort of live setting. Um, they're dressed in all white. Their instruments, monitors, mics, and wires were all white. Stage was lit up like some like mod show from the '60s. There were 12 digital cubes hanging in the arena ceiling, which lit up in conjunction with the stage. They entered and left the stage under a curtain that created this like further sense of performance surrounding it all. I mean, there was something so tight about this that aside from the fact that when the final curtain dropped it, I don't know if you saw this on the webcast, but like it didn't fully drop and it was just like hanging there and it just looked a little weird. But other than that, everything was like just done so you know, sharply and so clean, and I, I thought it was so incredibly well done. The first song had uh, had professional choreography, care of um, John Rua. He's a Broadway guy. He was involved in Hands in the Hard Body. He was in the original cast of Hamilton. Uh, he does a lot of hard, a lot of Broadway choreography. I think he's like 36, 37 years old, and I guess he's friends with Trey because of Hands in the Hard Body. So, yeah, that first song with Trey and Mike that was all professionally choreographed by a Broadway guy so wow kind of cool yeah I, w- I wouldn't have guessed that um, I hope that dance stays when they re- when they perform Terrible Fides uh, again yeah I guess my friends who are really into Broadway and I'm not surprised by this they say if you think the fish online community is crazy well it's got nothing on the Broadway online community <laughs> it's all yeah, all sorts it. of crazy message boards and John Rua who's like I've got a secret project I can't tell anybody and then when people find out that it was fish like no one knew what the hell it was it's funny well it's yeah it's I mean it's interesting to me to to um, think about it in the context of the two other Halloweens on which they've played original material and I, I mean I think something they probably realized after after they tried it for the first time with Wingsuit that um, is that you know is that it would probably work better if there was a little something extra to it other than just original music right um, yeah. you know like and and I mean it, in some ways this was pretty similar to Chilling Thrilling like Chilling Thrilling also had like a ton of 
amazing stagecraft. It was a great spectacle in addition to being a you know presentation of new music. And then like Chilling Thrilling, it was also kind of an intentional new musical direction for the band. Um, but then unlike Chilling, I mean, the thing about Chilling Thrilling that I think made it a little bit, uh, you know, like it was it was like an, an easier sell is the fact that it was it was really just kind of like very danceable grooves. Yeah. Um, and this is more along the lines of Wingsuit, I think, is is risky and just in, in, in terms of the fact that like they're just playing a bunch of like new songs. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I in in that respect, I think like the the strength of the songs really stands out. Um, you know, one of the one of the reasons that I think this was much more successful than Wingsuit is that you just compare the songs and like Wingsuit has has a lot of duds in it. Yeah, and uh, especially and really yeah, Wingsuit. I mean, less Fuego because they got rid of some of the horrible duds and they sequenced it differently. But mm-hmm. as presented back in Halloween 13, I mean, it was very um, stilted and at times not terribly fun. Yeah, Whereas absolutely. this was incredibly fun. Yeah, right. No, I, I, um, I think that it, it's interesting the way that they approach this in the sense that um, it's almost as though they knew if they did, if they said we want to play a whole new album again, their fan base would almost have rioted. <laughs> I feel like, you know, it feels yeah. like they just knew they had to uh, kind of throw people off a little bit, and, and I'm okay with that. Um, I think that what the reason why we're sitting here talking about it and not talking about a jam from the Vegas run, which was filled, I mean, that, that run was littered with excellent jams, is like what you said, Ben. I mean, the, the quality of these songs, they're some of the highest quality debuts that we've seen in a long time. I, you know, 2015 had some great ones, but I mean, as we've talked about, these are kind of a, a unique step forward in terms of songwriting and song craftsmanship. Um, so yeah, I think if they had come out and they would played another wingsuit, it would have fallen immediately flat. But I think that they had to have known, we've got some great songs here. We want to present them in a really unique way. How do we go about doing this? And I mean, the ever, the, and I don't know if we'll ever know this. Um, I, I know that there's a, there's a ask, ask Trey anything coming up here soon. Um, on Sirius, but the question I'd love to ask is um, what came first, the songs or the backstory? Because both of them, both both options are great. Um, so let's kind of, you know, in, in terms of like final takeaways from this and kind of where you guys see this going forward, I mean, um, Benner, what are, what are some of your like final takeaways like going into Fish 2019 essentially and what uh, what song do you um, do you want to play here off the album? Yeah, well, I, I mean, in terms of takeaway, you know, I th- I think this is like this is such a as as we've been saying, it's such an exciting direction forward for the band, and you know, Chilling Thrilling was also a really exciting direction for the band, and yeah. uh, and and I think I think I at least um, expected more of that and also that those songs would would uh, you know take up uh, a bigger space in the repertoire than they ended up doing I, th- I thought that, you know these were natural jam vehicles and very few of them have been ever and so I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that both that these uh, you know are, uh, are bigger jam vehicles and also that they do more like this I would like nothing more than for them to discover a uh, long lost second Kazvat Vaxed album for next Halloween. 
Um, <laughs> but, uh, but you know, I, I think that's really the big question is like, is whether they can, uh, you know, capture light, lightning in a bottle again with this kind of stuff. Um, yeah. Just uh, one takeaway I get is that even 30 years, 30 plus years after the fact, I mean, the fact that they can still pull this off and look like have a great time doing it makes think that their friendship, the four of them, is as deep as ever. And I think they just relish being able to crack each other up. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if they were at rehearsal and someone tripped on stage and fell into an amp and then Trey was like, you just did a faceplate into rock. And then they couldn't stop laughing. There's your Halloween show. Right. It's just a huge inside joke that right. <laughs> inside joke elevated to art. And yeah, I'm absolutely looking forward to some of these songs taking up more real estate. And hopefully not just like with Chilling Throwing, it seems they all get pretty short shrift compared to Martian Monster. And hopefully that won't be the case here. Yeah, I think my biggest takeaway, I've been pretty vocal been pretty vocal about how dissatisfied I've been with a lot of the 3.0 records just in terms of like how they've come out and um, you know I I think um, keeping Bob Ezrin as far away from fifth songwriting as, as, as possible is a good thing um, or Dave Cobb you know, what's Bob Ezrin if you guys go to Nashville guys use Dave Cobb please right. All right. you know the thing that bothered me the most is for a band that has spent their entire career destroying rock and roll norms to simply pump out a 65 minute classic rock style album has always been so below what I feel like they're capable of as artists and um, this whole concept of debuting an album live it's not as though it's completely brand new but it seems to be something that works uh, really really well for Fish in a lot of ways and I'd love to see them try to incorporate something like this you know as, as they continue writing songs they're like a random, you know, Tuesday night show at Camden, like, you know, turn, you know, work up, you know, to, to, to debut, you know, like five or six songs in a row in this type of standpoint. But, you know, more than anything, I feel like for the band to use this as an opportunity to showcase them at their best while also playing with an album, within an album style and with an album format is, uh, is, uh, just really exciting for the band going forward. So, um, you guys know how we feel about Casbot Boxed. Um, what songs are we going to play here off of the record? What, what songs have we uh, selected? Well, these would be the three songs that are back to back to back. This is four, five, and six, right? I believe so. So I, I've picked, uh, we, we've made this uh, really easy. I've picked um, We Are Come. I should actually know the t- song title. <laughs> so I. Well, it's translated from the Scandinavian, so it's kind of hard to. <laughs> right. Um, we are come to outlive our brains. Uh, Dave, what do you got? Got uh, say it to me, S A N T O S. And what do you got? I have got the final hurrah. Not the last, the final. Oh no, the final. The face player into rock. Before we play this, Ben, so, thank you so much for uh, joining us here to break down Casbah Fox. I know that you and I have been texting a lot over the last couple of days um, about our thoughts on this, so I was really happy to get you on and get your, your take on all this. 
Yeah, thanks guys. I've been like, I cannot get these songs out of my head, like even for a second. So I feel like this is like the first step in my therapy for <laughs> just like breaking this addiction. Wormhole bed. So yeah. we are, are helping your daughter and long suffering oh wife with <laughs> yeah, this no, podcast. For them. Everything's overlapping. So future to the passing. Only passing through with vapor, light, and liquid blue. Take a look around, it's exactly how it's supposed to be. Take a look around, the shapes are hanging over me. Take a look around, the shapes are hanging over you. Take a look around. To outlive our brains, I see you in the distance as I frown. We will come to outlive our brains.
Hope that you enjoyed those three selections off of I Rock, and thank you once again, uh, Ben Greenfield, for joining us uh, to break down Casvot Boxed Fish's, Fish's musical costume for October thirty first, two thousand eighteen, Halloween twenty eighteen. Um, so, just kind of getting into the shows here of this run, there were four really great, really strong shows that um, Fish played here over the last week. Um, so, starting with Halloween. Started out the run with Halloween first, followed by the first, second, and third. Set one here, I felt, was kind of like a mix between the 2013-2009 type of Halloween set one, as well as the 95-2010-2014 model. It's kind of good, fits the mood of the evening, not great. Felt a little bit subdued in a certain slightly slight way, and like they were you know, slightly nervous, rightly so, about what they had coming. Um, but you get the first Buried Alive since the Baker's Dozen, only the seventh since 2012. And uh, Ghost immediately got into the bliss zone with a pretty solid segue into sometimes. Um, what were your thoughts on this set here, Dave? It's good. It was very solid. Listen to the first set. There's actually a legit jam out of Haley's. It's a bit of mm-hmm. a mini jam. Doesn't go that long and get far out there, but the fact that they decided to do it at all is pretty cool. Um, even I like this also a lot. Like I've kind of trashed a song in the past, but this had a really nice dark bluesy jam to it. Like you said, the ghost and the crazy sometimes is very good. Um, you know, it wasn't just a warm; it was actually a pretty, pretty purposeful set. I mean, pretty lightweight, yeah, yeah. a bit light in terms of what followed, but you know, something I will, I'll cer- certainly will listen to it again. Yeah, I mean, with your first Haley's jam since August eighth, twenty fifteen, and only the fourth. Um, or excuse me, yeah, only the fourth in all 3.0, 528, 2011 from Bethel, and 61609 from the Fox in St. Louis, being the only other two. Um, pretty notable in that standpoint. Um, and then set, the set ends with first two, curtains falling on the last note, pretty dramatic moment. and um, Incredibly fast first two, like 2,000 tempo. Really yeah, fast. yeah, very fast. Um, and then we get into set two, which you already know how we feel about that, so we won't go too much over that. But um, set three opens up with a fantastic segment, Set Your Soul Free, into Tweezer, into a song I heard the ocean singing, song I heard the ocean sing, excuse me, uh, all jamming there from all that. And uh, Tweezer got into a really, really lovely groove. And then a song I heard the ocean sing, man, that was just Trey guitar shredding and such a preview of um, what uh, what we're about to hear from Trey throughout the, the next three shows. Just some really, really incredible stuff there. Yeah, that was by far the best version of that song, Under 10 Minutes. 
at one point Trey sounds like he's destroying his guitar with a power drill just like <laughs> staring at the ceiling way as high as the neck can possibly go and the whole rest of the band is probably looking at him in awe like yeah. it's really a fantastic version of that song that somehow clocks in under 10 minutes yeah it was really really good stuff and then um show ends in kind of like the most standardly expected way possible number line meat thick bug antelope encore of loving cup and tweezer it's hard to hate it it's also hard to love it it's kind of is there um, kind of burned it it's the yeah it's, it's the cigarette after coitus yes part. <laughs> there's like zero shock or zero replay value but like yeah you're right they they earned it um, show was uh, just under six hours in length when all was set on. Um, I almost didn't recover until just before the start of 11-1. I didn't realize how intense of a show this would be. Um, it was my first Halloween show. I loved it. I took my dad. He had an excellent time, and um, I would uh, I, I would definitely do another Halloween show. Those are really, really great experiences from Fish. Yeah, I was on the East Coast. I had to turn it off. Um in the middle of the song play by play not because it wasn't good because I had to go to work the next day and I just three hour time difference man it's tough it's it's a it's a difference um, yeah <laughs> so I don't think we could do this podcast if we had a three hour time difference it would make it very 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 difficult but two hours is a max but um, yes so uh, night two 11-1 um, immediately got going with a 13 minute bliss jam out of everything's right um, and this this show was really all about new songs in big spots, pushing the band forward. Um, and we'll talk about that here in the second set. But excellent jam out of Everything's Right. I had really great seats for this show. And this was my first of three shows this run that I took in with um, Justin Bruce, uh, big friend of the pod, really good guy. I've now seen like six of the past eight shows I've seen with him. Really? Um, yeah, he, uh, we hung out during Dick's and I know that. Hmm. hung out every show here. He uh, He's a weatherman in um, Las Vegas. He was recently in Nashville, all around just killer dude. Um, great restaurant recommendations, really great dad to chat with in the middle of the sets and then jump back into the whole thing. And um, he's a good guy to know when to, uh, when to cut him and yourself off when you're midway through a show and you just want to focus. So I really appreciated him for that. Um, ACDC bag. Uh, right after that, interestingly enough, you know, I was I was real. I was thinking about. It. I hadn't seen ACDC bag in quite some time. Between their return show, uh, March six oh nine, and December thirty first twenty thirteen, there were forty three ACDC bags played from July first two thousand fourteen to November first twenty eighteen. Only seventeen, so it's definitely jumped out of the rotation which um, I invite that. It's it's a lot more fun to hear when it's a little bit more rare, and it really did a good job of getting the show going here. Uh, and then Wolfman's was just outstanding, uh, laser-driven tray, unbelievable build there. Um, and Chalk Dust Torture later in the set was a huge set one jam vehicle for the second time this tour. Really excellent version before concluding with speed and intensity like it had almost never gone type two. It was a really, really good take. If you're talking any other multi-night run, this version of Chalk Dust would be a huge highlight. In Vegas, it's, quote, standard type two awesome. Yeah. I mean, there's just, 
there's just so much to choose from here that it's a healthy problem to have. Yeah, I think going back and listening to the run here as we prepared for this episode, and um, I've just been like, holy crap, the amount of music, the amount of great music that I heard. Um, I've been around that followed. Always great to hear that rare tune, some funny, hilarious chatter there. And uh, Walls of the Cave just had an extra dose of adrenaline as it peaked multiple times, something that we would hear a lot over the next couple of nights. Um, Set two, like I was saying, I loved how they did this. Blaze on No Man in No Man's Land and Fuego. Um, the latter two songs didn't get too out there. The fact that they're starting their second sets with these three jam vehicles is just so inspiring to me and such a nod to what they did the night before um, by debuting a completely new album. I mean, these new songs are the defining moments going forward for Fish. Relatively new. I mean, the class of 2015 new. Yeah, I, I just mean in the sense that, like, you know, it's not like they're opening their second sets anymore with. You know, down with Z's and the Tweezer, or down with Z's and the Ghosts. You know, I mean, they're 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 relying on these new songs to to try to get them through. Yeah, with regard to um, you know, I have a confession to make. There's so much music here that I haven't listened to the twist yet from this set. Was it good? I imagine it was. Oh my god, a treat! It's okay. it's really good. Um, it was probably the highlight of the night for me. Uh, of of uh, 11 1. Really? It developed in this very bizarre and demented jam. Yeah, it, at one point, it sounds like you're on like the most terrifying carousel ride you've ever been on. Um, Mike and Fish and Trey are just like riding this very driving rhythm, and Paige is on the organ playing very familiar, very twisted uh, 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 riffs over and over and over again. And then Trey starts singing over it. And I was convinced for like 10 seconds. I had like a mini freak out that we were getting the first catapult since the Tweezer Fest show back in 2014. And even when it didn't go into that, I didn't care. It's it's a really, really great, really unique take on Twist that then segues into uh, Prince Caspian before segueing back into Twist. And then the Harry Hood was fantastic. It had um, elements of... Um... We have come to out of our brains, right? It did, yeah, and it developed. And then by like fish, yeah. kind of, is because I think kind of like the jam of that song and Harry Hood, it might be in the same key, similar progression, so it just kind of fit. That was like a very good seventeen-minute version of the song. Yeah, it's kind of a nod to the twenty fourteen jams on the songs or on that song. Um, I thought it was a fantastic version, great way to close out set two, and um, you know. Final nod to uh, uh, Kazvot Vox. Any, anyone thinking that these new songs are stupid, Fish will give you contact. And uh, mm. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, uh, th- I thought this was a really solid show. I think um, it will probably be overshadowed uh, for me and probably for a lot of people for the long haul um, in the overall run just because of kind of where it fell. But I think um, if you're going to have an overshadowed great show, this is the one that you want. Yeah, I'd say this show is still better, definitely better than both of the Albany shows, probably all three of the Hampton shows. Um, it's at least probably more in the realm of like Nashville 1, Chicago 1, but still very, very yeah. good. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, it would be a top three show of the summer, that's for sure, by far. A hundred percent, yeah. Um, all right, so Vegas night three. 
this was perhaps the best fish show I've ever seen. I'm just going to come out and say it. Um, unbelievable rarities to kick things off. Jamming from the second that they started Mercury through the end of the show, essentially. An all-time encore for me. Uh, Trey gushing at the crowd. I mean, this had everything. Enter- the, the crowd at this show was one of the best crowds I've ever been a part of. I'm not sure if it comes across on the soundboard or on the webcast, but that crowd came for blood that night. They wanted nothing more than an incredible fish show, and that it was the crowd and band back and forth all night long, egging each other on. It was so much fun in that room and such a fantastic experience overall. And it continues the run of incredible Friday night shows. Yeah, yeah. Fridays are the new... Uh, the new uh, Sunday, it seems like, in this era of fish. Um, just a quick run through, like, kind of some of the stats from the start of the show. So we had the 12th cavern opener ever, the fourth since 2013, and alongside November 1st, 2013, and December 2017, uh, where a cavern opener just tends to pretend great things. Um, the third Beauty of My Dreams of 3.0, and only the fourth since 2000. Uh, the eighth if I could of 3.0 and only the 10th since 1996 and the eighth way of 3.0 and the ninth since 1998. And somehow I realized this as I was, we were preparing for this. I've seen the last three ways, uh, August 9th, 2015 chocolate night at Baker's dozen and, uh, here 11 to 2018. I, I, for whatever reason thought it was less rare than it was. And, uh, just realizing all three of those, um, I'm, I'm in quite shock that they that they actually played those all three in a row. It's really, really great stuff. It was uh, sand and get back on the train, both fire, both extended the energy of the set, and really sand on this tour has been really fast, and Trey's been just using this dirty yeah. rock tone that makes it sound like he's torturing like back alley cats. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it was... It gets quite intense. Like the sands, they don't go type two ever. They just get growly and loud. Yeah. And waking up the neighbors with the sands. Then you got Martian Monster, which was the first and I believe only chilling, thrilling song of the Vegas run. You know, where in 2016 they opened up every show of the run aside from Halloween, but they played it right after the Greeny opener. But they opened up every show with a different chilling, thrilling song right. as a nod to the 2014 Halloween show. Kind of felt like they didn't necessarily need to do that to this time. So let's just play like the biggest Martian, you know, biggest chilling, thrilling song that there is. Which was definitely cool to see it in that building. Um, I definitely, uh, Got some chills from that. Um, and then uh, Mercury. Um, Mercury. 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 Man, oh man, oh man. Have we been waiting for this? Uh, you all know that we love this song. You all know that we were waiting for this moment. Chicago gave us a big hint of what the song was capable of. But here they pushed through to the promised land with a 25-minute first set masterpiece that was not unlike the Forum Fuego, one of our favorite jams of 2018. Uh, yeah, I think this is probably the best first set jam since um, Jam Field Night with the Lawn Boy, or Lawn Man, Yeah, I call it. I think it may be my favorite jam of the Vegas run. And as you know, on Beyond the Pond, we like using baseball metaphors. So this yep. jam was like bottom of the ninth, Two outs, home team's down by three runs. And then there's a single, 
Then there's a walk. There's a run scoring ground ball that somehow sneaks under the second baseman's glove. And then when the cleanup hitter is down to the last strike, he hits a walk off through run jack. It just was quiet and got bigger and bigger and bigger until you're like, holy shit, this is what's going down. <laughs> and it mirrors the Forum Fuego in that it's very similar, quiet to Triumphant Jam that actually utilizes the same chord progression. And um, actually, Ben Greenfield, who we had on earlier this episode, said that his only complaint about this jam is that they already played it. To which I say, yeah, but you know, motherfucker, they can play this every other show, and I'm cool with it. <clears throat> <laughs> yeah, this was my first, uh, my first ever 20-plus minute first set jam I witnessed live. Uh, to have that happen with my favorite song in the last 15 years the band's written um, was a really cool moment, and just... One of those moments, like, I mean, I texted Dave. Uh, unfortunately, I was a minute ahead of him. I, I forgot I, that the webcasts are delayed. It's like, ah, damn it, they're going into taste. And, uh, you know, even in the moment, I was, like, excited to hear taste because that's, you know, pretty rare these days. But I was also, like, I wanted to hear this jam keep going. And then it was like, holy shit, holy shit, holy shit, they're going to keep going this. And um, I was just so excited, man. What a what a, what a jam, what a moment there in the whole run, what a moment. Absolutely at one point year. where Trey wanted to go in the Set Your Soul Free, and then you probably remembered, oh, yeah, we already played it. Can't do that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, and it was followed with uh, Set One Susie, uh, just where that song should be. Uh, it should always, uh, I, you know, I, I love it in that spot. I think it's got great energy there. Um, and then the second set, just effortless perfection in a lot of cases um, i don't know about so much perfection is sloppy fun like sloppy effortlessness i mean wasn't the only real slop in the set diuti um yeah, i mean with down with disease he played the big triumphant riff in the wrong key that was weird oh yeah you're right you're right okay okay which and then the is this jam was kind of like a drunken bar band in like Cancun spring break trying to play <laughs> it's the second time I've seen fish in Vegas and the second time Trey's played uh down with disease in the wrong key when I've seen yeah. it so there's got to be a theme there but um I mean perfection I just mean in the sense that like even when they called Gaiuti, that's not a song I would ever want to call in a second set I felt that it worked from an energy standpoint I felt like from a flow um standpoint this was just an effortless night um soul planet full bliss peak before fading into down disease um and we only had two down disease this tour seven this year clearly a conscious effort from the band to put it slightly on the back burner um which i am gone on record i will never complain about down disease um but i'm i'm fully welcoming this i think it's uh it's 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 good to kind of take it away a little bit make it more surprising and uh bring some of these other big songs up to the up to the rear yeah, I would certainly, certainly concur. And the Soul Planet opener was great. Again, under normal circumstances, the Soul Planet is a tour highlight. More people are talking about it, but it's just standard type two awesome. Right. And then you get uh, Gaiuti, seventh since 2012. Kind of show, definitely a little bit rusty. Uh, it was my first since 2010, so I thought it was placed pretty well to keep with the rarities of the show and to kind of keep the show blasting at high energy. Um, I would say the next song, Sneak and Sally, was the biggest call of the night. 
So at that point, following Gaiuti, you could get very, very standard and very, very tepid at that point in time. And they just kept going with the energy. Um, probably the most interesting jam we've gotten out of Sneak and Sally since July 18th, 2016 in San Francisco, though that version was much longer and much bigger. Um, and Light was uh, was phenomenal. Um, I would say that this was on par with the Dix version from this year, uh, 831, 18. It was... Uh, yeah, this year, certainly. Not Dix 2012, but certainly... No. It's up there with uh, the excellent version that they played from Dix this year, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just very soaring. Trey casting off, still trying to cast off those curveball demons. Um, and Light has had uh, had an excellent year. Uh, you've got the July 20th version from The Gorge, August 7th from Camden, uh, the 831 version that we mentioned, uh, 1017 from Albany, and 1021 from Hampton. All fantastic versions that have really pushed the song forward in a lot of ways. Good slave, closer. Little uh, Very, very good. Little longer than average, a little better than average. Well done. And then the uh, big fish fanatics, Bob Weaver. Bob Weaver. Bob Weaver. <laughs> He's not tucking anymore. Mm. <laughs> He's twerking now. Uh, packed with energy and uh, following uh, final hold your head up Trey said we're going to play an old song here because tonight feels like an old show which the crowd just went insane people were hugging each other you know people were just like arms raised like that's sort of shit that you just want to hear from the band and you never ever hear any shows and we, we've talked about how the band said literally nothing to the fan base during the um dicks run and uh to get something like that uh here in vegas was just so satisfying and i couldn't have blamed you if you got excited and thought they're gonna play lushington and i was like what can we get what can we get well, they play good times bad times which technically is a very old song from quite old, old song. song and uh they did a really good song yeah that's that was a pantheon fish that was uh i'd say that was easily the best fish of the year so far and um, I'm happy that you were there. I think once again, because of the crazy time difference, I passed out in the middle of the Oikoma jam down with disease. And then woke up and watched the rest of it the next day before going to work. But, but actually, this was a Friday, right? Wow, shit, I had no excuse to go to sleep. Yeah, I mean, you've been up late the last three nights just kind of going through Vegas shows I totally yeah I've been up late the last three nights and when you have a four year old there's no sleeping past 6.30 ever so <laughs> so you know final night of the run Saturday November 3rd Vegas night 4 um, this got started to a less intense set 1 than uh, the last two nights probably due to the energy exerted on November 2nd which is very understandable Though at the same time, Kildall Falls pushed at the seams and Rogue was stunning. And Tube, this is the first version I'm aware of to go into a full-on Bliss Jam. Maybe only Powder Night and 624.04 compare. But um, this was a very unique, very cool take on Tube. I loved this. Yeah, all the Tubes that have been played, the three Tubes played this fall were all great. All uh, the good versions of the song. It's no longer is the song going to jam? It's more of how is it going to jam? 
and it usually it never leaves its home key, but here it goes into, I think it was a big C major jam. Almost, I think I called it bath tube gin, because if you just <laughs> walked in during the jam, it sounds like they're playing bathtub gin. So that was cool. And next you get a very decent mic song that um, it only pales because it's not the Nashville mic song, but very little is. So taking at face value was a good mic song, which goes into Life Boy, which, um, you know, they haven't played that in ages. Clearly rehearsed it, played it very well into Weekapog, which I don't recall that much about in the webcast other than that it seemed to be pretty good. Yeah, I mean, this Life Boy is the first since 1025-2016. Again, I mean, this was cool. It's only the fourth of 3.0 and only the seventh since 98. So yet another rare hoist ballad, yet another rare song being thrown at us here in the last couple shows of the tour. Really, really good stuff. Um, second set, fantastic. Um, I... I think I would say that the night before was better just in terms of the energy. The crowd definitely was more subdued this night. It felt like the band was working hard to get to these like big peaks and the crowd was not rewarding them as much as they were on Friday night. Again, understandable. I know I heard lots of stories about people staying out all night on Friday night. I was pretty close to being one of those people. Uh, Friday night was one of those shows that you just left with like, a head full of steam and if you're in a city like vegas that's literally open all night long um there's kind of no reason why you would ever uh, stop things going <laughs> yeah this set is fantastic by any objective standard only maybe not as good as the night before right but right yeah <laughs> any other night you know this would be uh this ain't no saturday night special this is quite quite good um at this point, Carini set two openers with the new Down with Disease set two openers. You yeah. understand why it's there. Usually leads to good things, but maybe ease up on the gas pedal with the Carini set two openers a little bit. Yeah. You know, uh, this one, decidedly dark and angry. It's got Def Don't Hurt Very Long teases. And you can see on the webcast, for whatever region, Paige McConnell is very excited at Trey's uh, wanting to go in the 46 days. <laughs> um. 46 days was uh all out rock star tray following a you know really just kind of dimly darkly dark intense carini um it was not it was not a dick's version from this year but um 46 days is just consistently awesome every time they play that song i'm just like i want i you know they finish it i'm just got fist bumping as well it's it's great stuff extremely awesome sense and subtle sounds Trey has a hard time with the intro. I mean, not um, like the full intro, but, um, you know, the riffs that kick off the song when he tries to segue it out. For some reason, he can never quite get it right. Doesn't really matter. And once again, on social media, we think this version of the song is just getting a bit of a raw deal because people were a bit tired at night four and night three was that good. But this is, this could be a top three version of the song. I mean, it goes in a lot of different directions and ends with this gorgeous Loving Cup jam that will make you want to scream out, oh, with a beautiful buzz. Just rocking G major peaking. It's very, very good. And followed by Cross-Eyed. And I know for me, I kind of prefer Cross-Eyed as a huge 
set to opening jam launching pad, but you know, I'm never going to complain about a relatively shorter 12 minute version to kick off the fourth quarter. But I know uh, there was a 2001 in there, there was a possum, but this set is really entirely about the split open and melt, which clocks in at about 21 yeah. minutes. It gets way the fuck out there. It's got nothing in common with the general split open and melt jam or even um, the more recent evil split open and melt jams where it seems that the lighting rig is just going to crush the band. This, um, I don't know, I think it's probably the best one since Coventry. Maybe uh, Ross will put August 10, yeah. 1997 from Deer Creek up there. But this uh, does things that Split generally does not do. And it was a big exclamation point on Vegas weekend, a statement of purpose and kind of, um, you know, I don't think Trey ever really thinks about the quote unquote competition when he's up there on stage, but your jam band can't do this. <laughs> yeah, this was um, definitely my favorite. I mean, this in the sense where the two big moments of the set for me, this was definitely my favorite moment of the overall set. This is the, type of music i love listening to as you guys should know here on beyond the pond um and i was just i don't even think i was dancing anymore i think i was just like staring straight at the face they're straight at the stage just like mouth open just like holy shit what are they doing right now um absolutely love this stuff and um would would welcome this sort of uh music and this type of mind fuckery from fish going forward for years to come and what was the encore? Was Waiting in the Velvet Sea, Character Zero? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, suffice to say, if this is anything of the future, I already cannot wait to go to MSG.
All right, guys, hope you're enjoying this week's episode. Before we go any further, we wanted to remind you of our sponsor for this week, Ben and Jerry's It's Ice Cream. If you go to store.benjerry.com, you can order It's Ice Cream along with a special Jim Pollock t-shirt. Portions of the proceeds for the ice cream and all of the proceeds for the t-shirts are donated to the Water Wheel Foundation. So you will be falling on the ice deliciously. <laughs> a reminder, use promo code OSIRIS, that's O-S-I-R-S, and you can get free shipping on all orders over $50 for the rest of 2018. I know what I'm ordering for my wife for Christmas. Yeah, if I could just say one thing, I've been eating Ben & Jerry's my entire life, and I would take a pint of Cherry Garcia over just about any artisanal ice cream in my neighborhood you can name. And it's ice cream is no different it's really really good stuff and we're excited to be partnering with ben and jerry's here to uh support a really fantastic cause with that let's get back to the show guys thank you so much for allowing us the time to break down fish's vegas 2018 run as well as the casvot voxed uh set from 1031 thank you once again ben for joining us for that so getting into our music as you all know here at beyond the pond we take fish and we spew you out there into the world and uh kind of focus on other uh music that's similar to what we're what what fish is uh being about it that you know in this particular jam or this particular era so this segment is called i think it's so real i am beyond fake so we set out to find some real bands who also had some fake bands associated and we're going to play one song by the real band and then one song by their fake kind of alter ego if you will because if you will Casvault Vox is clearly Fish's alter ego at this point in their career. So I'm going to talk about an artist that we should have talked about months and episodes and probably years ago at this point in time, but we somehow haven't, probably because he's ever present, but he is fucking awesome, and that's Prince. And his fake side project that we're going to talk about here is Camille. So for the Prince segment, I'm going to uh, play the song I Would Die For You off of Purple Rain, one of his best songs. And for the Camille segment, I'm going to talk. I'm going to play uh, the song "Housequake" off of the self-titled unreleased record. So, I don't think I have to go into this, but I will just kind of briefly here for you guys. Prince Rogers Nelson was the given name of the enigmatic, extremely influential, gender-defined, uh, era irrelevant, pigeonholeist artist who essentially defined and redefined the 80s and reshaped pop music for years after he was active and relevant and later passed away. He was a multi-instrumentalist who released 39 studio albums. He was a man who experienced epileptic seizures as a child and one day told his mom he wasn't going to be sick anymore because an angel had told him so. Hmm. He wrote his first song when he was seven, titled it Funk Machine. And he was a basketball, football, and baseball player in high school, which is something I just simply can't believe. 
1993, he changed his name to an unpronounceable symbol in protest of his contract with Warner Brothers, and then went on to release five albums in two years to get out of his contract. He won eight Grammys throughout his career and also won an Academy Award for the film Purple Rain. He was a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductee in 2004, played the best damn solo ever played on While My Guitar Gently Weeps, as well as the best Super Bowl halftime show in history. Prince's popularity grew throughout the 80s and could and should compile an entire two-parter from Beyond the Pond. Um, And he released some of the most important and iconic albums of rock history, including 1999 and Purple Rain, amongst many, many, many others. In terms of Camille, so... In 1986, Prince broke up his band, The Revolution, and began recording a new record. He began experimenting with his voice, disguising it and pitching it up in an androgynous style, and soon assuming the moniker Camille. Within 10 days of entering the studio in 1986, he had a full album completed and informed his label that he would be releasing the record under the name Camille, and that his image would not be on it. For whatever reason, however, Prince abandoned the project weeks before it was set to be released, and it's been a legend ever since. Some of those songs would end up on his 1987 record, Sign of the Times, but on the whole, the record has been lost to time. So we're going to play for you I Would Die For You off of Purple Rain, as well as Housequake off of Camille. Bullshit. You can't get up until you make the house shake. Now everybody 
Okay, Brian, thank you for uh, the Prince and or Camille songs. So, for the real band I've got is a British band called XTC. And the song we're going to play from them is some called uh, Summer's Cauldron. And the fake band, their alter egos, the Dukes of Stratosphere. The song I'm going to play is called Vanishing Girl. So XTC, they're a seminal British rock band formed in the early 70s, known for the songwriting duo of Andy Partridge and Colin Moulding. And they would exist on and off in some form or other up until 2006, when they dissolved mostly because they just kind of claimed they hate each other. They were the main songwriters, um, different band members and guitarists kind of shuffled in and out through the years. I know that Trey Anastasia is said to be a fan. Um, the 1982 XTC song Melt the Guns off of uh, the English Settlement double album, that was an early Fish cover, and I think it was featured on um, some of the most widely circulated 80s Fish tapes, like um, the April 87 show from Nectars, I want to say April 27th, 87. That could be mistaken. And uh, Fish reportedly tapped Paul, uh, Paul Fox, who produced it hoist, because he did the rather robust production on XTC's 1989 Oranges and Lemons. And that's the record that has their song, The Mayor of Simpleton, which is the highest charting U.S. song. One of those songs when it's on the radio, you're like, oh, this is XTC? You know this song? So XTC, uh, they're often compared to the Beatles and their ambitious embrace of pop whimsy and studio craft. Two-headed songwriting machine. And in 1982, they're also like the Beatles because they became an entirely studio band because Andy Partridge had a bit of a nervous breakdown. Also uh, had some crippling stage fright, general psychiatric malaise that I think was partially blamed on an over-reliance on Valium. So becoming a studio entity enabled them to produce what I think is their best album, 1986's Skylarking. Very uh, lush, flowery song cycle that kind of reminds you of uh, the earlier super British-sounding Blur albums, and which contains a really great production job care of Todd Rundgren, who um, he was hired off a list of producers that was given to XTC by the record label Virgin because I guess they believed at the time uh, they were not successful because they sounded, quote, too English. I mean, to these ears, Skylarking sounds extremely fucking English, by which I say it's gorgeous and flowery and sequence of the songs run into each other. And it also had a minor college radio hit with the song Dear God, which I think was actually a B-side, but it got so much play on college radio that when the album was uh, distributed in the States by Geffen, it was appended to the end of the album. It's not actually the last song, but that's uh, where it can be found. So we're going to play the opening track off of Skylarking called Summer's Cauldron, sung by Andy Partridge. It's got melodica, and I am a sucker for any song that utilizes a melodica. As for the fake band, so who are the Dukes of Stratosphere? So when guitarist David Gregory, he joined XTC in 1979, apparently it was discovered that both uh, he and Andy Partridge had an affinity for 60s psychedelic rock, and they had actually wanted to consider cutting an album of XTC songs in that style, 
but some contractual obligations with the record label uh, prevented them from doing so. Still, this was an era when you could uh, twist the arms of record labels to do funny things. So Virgin still gave him 5,000 pounds to uh, do this. So in 1984, XTC, they cut an EP under the Dukes of Stratosphere name. And I thank God they gave themselves a set of rules to deal with these songs, saying that it had the pull from um, 1967-68 Psych Style, only had to use vintage instruments, and no more than two takes were allowed for each song. So the EP that came out in 1985 was called 25 O'Clock, and they presented it as the work of a long-lost collection of recordings from a 60s psychedelic group. And it's really quite good. There's uh, vintage Profisa organ sounds, good harmonies, watery guitar, and, you know, they definitely... These songs sound like things from Sid Barrett, The Beatles, Strawberry Alarm Clock. And XTC, initially, they denied having any involvement in the band whatsoever. And the label was happy to be in on the joke. And it actually ended up outselling the most recent XTC album at the time. So after they made Skylark in 86, uh, there seemed to be a bit of a hankering from the record buying public for a second Dukes of Stratosphere album. So that's when they put out the record Sonic Sunspot. They were given twice as big a budget. And uh, once again, they worked with the producer, John Leckie, who uh, you may know is the guy who produced Radiohead's The Benz, My Morning Jacket's Z, among uh, several other things. And once again, this album uh, outsold Skylarking. And it kind of had Andy Parcher saying it was a bit upset and think that people may have preferred the made-up personalities of Dukes of Stratosphere that of XTC, but really XTC had kind of gradually turned into the Dukes over the years anyway, so it was kind of okay. So while there weren't any other Dukes of Stratosphere albums that were released, both the EP and Sonic Sunspot were uh, reissued as chips from the Chocolate Fireball. So let us listen to uh, the first song, uh, Sonic Sunspot, Vanishing Girl, probably their best song. Drowning here in summer's cauldron Under mats of flower Oh, 
right, Dave. Thank you so much for some XTC and Dukes of Stratosphere there. Really great stuff. So, segment two. Uh, the Kazvot Vox set would not be what it was without the legend of the Scandinavian scientist working in an underground bunker in Greenland before coming back down to Scandinavia to record their record and um, then disbanding and one of the members going insane. So we want to talk about two of our favorite Scandinavian bands that some of you may be aware of, some of you may not, um, but they're definitely worth your time. And they're both up the alley of what Fish Sonically was pushing for and kind of the spirit of all of this. So, so the band I'm going to talk about is Rado Ja Ledisalo, which is a Finnish duo. Uh, and the album that we are going to play a song from here, um, man, just forgive me for this one right now, but it is uh, Copernicus Hortoli Naki Kengasa, I believe is how it's pronounced. And uh, the song that I'm going to play is uh, Valinopius. So this is an album, any of you listening here were on Fantasy Tour in the fall of 2009 winter of 2010 you might have seen this record being passed around by a user by the name of logic error logic error if you are out there if you are listening if anyone knows who this dude is i don't think he's been on fantasy tour since like 2010 dude turned me on to so much music he was just constantly he'd had these like elongated threads of like links to records that were like some of the most mind-blowing, mind-altering music I'd heard at the time. It's where I got introduced to the band Woods, to the band Sate, as well as to this duo. So thank you, thank you eternally. Whoever you are, you did some excellent work. Anyway, um, so Rado Ja Ledesalo is a couple of band members of um, the Finnish avant-rock band Circle. Uh, Jussi Latesalo uh, and Rado um is uh mike rotto excuse me he is the are those are the two members in this band so this is a side project of uh circle and they made their debut in 2003 on ectro records um so it's bassist it's vocals and keyboards um the band circle made their album debut in 1994 uh, with Moronia, and then he released a succession of albums in the years that followed, often more than once a year. And then when Rado and Ledisalo uh, teamed up, um, they kind of wanted to focus on synth-pop styles of the 1980s. So this is definitely in line with what Fish was playing on uh, Halloween 2018. This album uh, was their full-length, de- full-length album debut, came out in 2003, had a minor hit single, the song that we're going to play here. Um, and subsequent albums came out in 05 as well as 06. And I think that they just released a couple records over the last two or three years. Um, at one point, they added Finnish rock legend Kauko uh, Roika to their ranks temporarily. And then um, they became a trio. Roika, Ja, Rado, Ja, Ledesalo. Um, their resulting album, uh, High Karanta, was a top 10 hit. So really the biggest thing that you want to know, this is an experimental rock band. 
Their output is clearly influenced by Krautrock acts such as Cluster, New, and Harmonium. Um, and uh, it's just really infectious, groovy, synth-driven, 80s, Scandinavian electro-pop. And I absolutely love it. So we're going to go here, go ahead here and listen to uh, Valadopus off of Rado Ja Ledesalo's debut record, Copernicus Portoli Nakin Kengasta. Take us home here. The album I'm going to talk about is a very short-lived band called Baby Grandmothers. And uh, only album appropriately self-titled, Baby Grandmothers. This band is actually a real Scandinavian psychedelic rock band that only put out one album. But unlike Fish's fake Scandinavian psych rock band, this is a decidedly late 60s heavy psych song. It sounds very tied to the era. So apparently these guys were the house band at the short-lived, as in four months, Stockholm Swedish psych rock club called Philips. And they toured alongside the Jimi Hendrix experience in Europe in 1968. And they really only had one album, which was a 2007 reissue of, I think, all of their known recordings which contains both live and studio recordings, as well as their debut single, Somebody Keeps Calling My Name, which is basically just a heavy psych guitar jam with uh, the title phrase screamed out in broken English menacingly amidst an endless dreams of guitar soloing and bass rumbles that uh, more recently kind of recall 60s hard rock psych throwbacks Earthless who uh, just put out a new live album recently, which owns, by the by. So this is a very raw, dirgy album, lots of heady drones. I think it has at least one of the songs of 60 Minutes, may have two 60-minute songs. And then like I think like the last three songs combined are like three minutes and 30 seconds. This is really a Blacklight album par excellence. I mean, you can easily even see some elements of some stuff that black sabbath might have taken from these guys so i actually wasn't that familiar with them until recently so um 
we do our homework on this podcast. So, yeah. Let's listen to Somebody Keeps Calling My Name by the Baby Grandmothers. Thank you so much for hanging out with us here in our 48th episode where we recapped the incredible Vegas run that Fish was on, uh, the Halloween show that we absolutely loved with Ben Greenfield at Guy Forger OPT. Thank you so much, Ben, for sitting down with us here and talking with us about that. So quick song recaps. You know what we played at the top of the show from a Fish standpoint. Uh, Segment one. I fake it so real, I am beyond fake. I picked Prince, I Would Die For You off of Purple Rain. And then his uh, alter ego, Camille, Housequake off of Camille. Dave picked XTC's Summer Cauldron and Duke of Stratosphere's Vanishing Girl. And segment two, The Fire of Scandinavia. I picked Rado Ja Letisalo Valinopius off of Copernicus Hortoli Nakinkangasa. I think I finally got that one right. Jesus. And Dave picked Baby Grandmothers. Somebody keeps calling my name off of their self-titled debut, Baby Grandmothers. So, just a reminder, we're active on social media. On Twitter, at underscore Beyond the Pond. Simplecast, beyondthepond.simplecast.fm. Spotify, we have our Beyond the Pond podcast song playlist. Contains all the songs we have featured on this uh, past 40 episodes. We try to update it shortly after the new episode goes up. 
part of the Osiris Podcast Network, which is OsirisPod.com. Please check out that website. Check out our brother and sister podcasts. And drop us an iTunes review as we read them. And anything that we can do to raise our uh, visibility in Apple world is welcome. Quite. So publishing structure, I know that we've said this a bunch of times. This episode, as we're recording this on Wednesday night, I don't know exactly when it's going to come out. I'm making a strong push for it to be released at some point on this Friday. So you might be listening to this as you go into your weekend. It might come out over the weekend. Not the most ideal, but we want to get this out here as quickly as possible for you guys. Because we also have a new episode coming out next week. And then following that, very, very special 50th episode. Not going to give anything away to you guys about that yet, but we're really excited for you guys to hear that one. Once that ends, we will have two more episodes for 2018. Both of those will fall in our pretty normal uh, publishing structure. And then we'll be taking a slight, 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 slight hiatus going into uh, the start of 2019 before we recap the MSG run. So lots of stuff here in the immediate before we uh, wrap up 2018. Absolutely. You've made it this far. Give yourself a pat on the back. We appreciate it. And then come back shortly. Our next episode, episode 49, is fun. It's quick. I certainly enjoyed recording it. We will join hands. We will be the glue in each other's magnets. And we will go beyond the pond. Osiris.